0: Welcome to the latest edition of our Fixed Interest podcast series. My name's Ed Parker. I'm the Global Head of Research for Sovereigns at Fitch Ratings. I'm joined today by Brian Coulton, Fitch's Chief Economist and lead author of the latest edition of our Global Economic Outlook. Brian, the subtitle of the GEO published this week is Inflation, Interest Rate Hikes and Recession – and you've revised down again your global growth forecasts and revised up your expectations about rate hikes. That sounds pretty gloomy stuff. Perhaps you can kick off the discussion by talking us through the main messages from your new forecasts. We can then drill down into some of the issues in a bit more detail.
1: Yeah, well, we're not bringing much Christmas cheer with this edition of the Global Economic Outlook. I guess three sort of main areas I would I would emphasise in terms of sort of the big picture here. And the first, I think, is that inflation is proving to be a lot harder to tame than a lot of policymakers, a lot of forecasters were expecting. Um, and to some extent, what we're seeing now, what we're doing now is learning some of the old lessons of the past about how painful it is to get inflation down. So, I think I think the inflation dynamic is going to be an absolute crucial driver of the outlook over 2023. Second point is, although we've seen some quite important uh, developments on the on the positive side in terms of the gas crisis in Europe, important to remember it's it, this is still a very uh, dramatic deterioration, a very dramatic supply shock that's now coursing its way through the European economy at the moment. Uh, as of yesterday, recording this on the 8th of December, as of yesterday, European gas prices, wholesale prices closed at €150 Euros per megawatt hour. Uh, that compares to uh, an average of, of 18 before the pandemic. So so it's not quite the tenfold increase we were talking about in September, maybe a maybe sevenfold increase, but still a massive supply shock. And that's still working its way through the economy. And then the third point I would make really is you know, we, we've had some fairly dramatic impacts from all these issues on financial markets, housing markets are already responding. But in many ways, the real implications of all this, uh, the, the impact on, uh, uh, on real GDP and on job markets is still ahead of us. Uh, and, you know, if you look out the window now, you probably don't really see what looks like a recession in many ways. But we do think that's coming next year. Uh, th- these, are, these are really huge shocks.
0: Yeah, it's quite unusual for economists to be forecasting a recession in the year ahead rather than being taken by surprise. And it was notable that the outturns in Q3 were generally firmer than expected, partly reflecting, as you say, the the stronger supply-demand balance and and lower gas prices in Europe. So could we uh, all be being a bit over-pessimistic here or...? Do you see this improvement in uh, the the gas situation and, and the Q3 outturns as more of a temporary reprieve?
1: I mean, this is one of those situations where what we've all observed is uh, some really very big shocks hitting the economy, uh, and the, the the two shocks, as I mentioned, the the gas price, gas supply situation, uh, and the monetary policy adjustments, which have much been much bigger and are going to be much bigger than than any of us were expecting, even as of the sort of summer of last year. So when you see shocks of that size, They're just too big to ignore in terms of your forecast. So that's why we're we're expecting the economy to to deteriorate quite sharply. next year. we've got recessions, uh, the eurozone in the UK and in the US a little bit later. uh, But but all all of those economies are going to see recession in uh, late 2022, 2023, because of the the, the lagged impact uh, of of these shocks on, on the economy. Now, it's true that in the third quarter, things turned out better than we expected, but I think quite a lot of that was just sort of reopening effect of international tourism, which particularly helped the southern European economies. You know, these these reopening effects are very difficult to forecast. Quite often, you know, we've understated the downturn when we've had restrictions and then we've understated the, the recovery when the restrictions are eased. And I think that was the story in Q3. And then a little bit of payback in the US for, uh, again, some temporary factors that, that weighed on the economy in the first half of the year. So when I'm looking at the Q3 numbers, I'm not, I'm not seeing a kind of underlying strength there necessarily, other than maybe on the labour market side. All that said, uh, yeah, there, there is an upside risk here, and it's important to talk about that, and not get too pessimistic. The upside risk, I think, comes from the easing in supply chain pressures that we've seen in global manufacturing and global goods markets. Remember, this was a big source of the inflation shock in 2021. Uh, the supply chain constraints proved to be a much more powerful, and much more sustained source of Higher inflation uh, and and lower output uh, than otherwise would have been the case. Certainly, less output than was than, than was uh, um, output was le- grew grew less rapidly than than demand, and that was much more powerful on the upside. What we're seeing now is that that's that's flipped round, and so we're seeing you know the semiconductor situation is is eased a lot. Car companies are able to produce stuff now that they just couldn't do. They couldn't produce new cars for 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 uh, for, for for a while. So. The mirror image of the of the sort of the, the forecast errors that we and lots of others made in 21 as these supply chain issues became a problem, that could prove to be a lot more powerful. So, you know, we might be seeing higher output and lower prices. We could have underestimated the benefits from that. But that's, that's probably about the only upside I see. I, I see lots of downsides
0: as well. And speaking about supply chains and, and opening up, let's talk a bit more about China, because there seems quite a lot of important but uncertain developments unfolding there. We've got the surge in COVID cases, but also possibly a a rapid exit from the zero COVID policy underway. How do you weigh those up in terms of the net impact on growth? And at the same time, there's the deep slump in the property market. How worried should we be about that? Well, net-net,
1: we've become more pessimistic. So we've downgraded our forecast for next year to 4.1 from 4.5. Main driver of that is the property market. Um, In terms of the the COVID situation, I mean, this is the The policy response here and the policy approach uh, is evolving quite rapidly. And as we were closing our forecast, there were some quite big developments going on. Bottom line is, I, th- I think in the near term things are going things are going dis- to deteriorate because the COVID cases are are surging very rapidly. Although it looks as if the uh, the, the government is, is is maybe moving towards. Uh, uh, as kind of living with COVID ap- approach at the margin, it's quite hard to see that being a very smooth approach. Um, you know, the, the the vaccination coverage ratios for for the for the for, for older people are quite low in China. Number of ICU beds per capita is is quite low. You know, we we, we could have quite a uh, an alarming situation on, on the health side as as these restrictions are are, are removed uh, if if they if they are removed, which could have quite big negative impacts on the economy in the near term. And you remember going back to the sort of pandemic discussions here, it was this idea of voluntary social distancing, people were just too scared to go out to the shops, to restaurants. And so even if you remove the official restrictions, you can still get... a uh, uh. So I, I think I think for, for Q4, we're now expecting the economy to, to shrink again in China. Um, and I think the first half, or certainly the first quarter of next year, I think we're going to see a lot of volatility. You know, we're probably not going to see restrictions removed on, on a, blank, a blanket basis. So, you know, the, the forecast that we've come up with, the 4.1, the downgrade from 4.5 is mainly about the weaker outlook for, for property. We'll come on to that. But back in September, we were already assuming that there will be some easing of, of the COVID policy in the second half of the year. I think compared to where we were in September on the COVID impact, the COVID policy impact and the consumption profile, I think I would say things are looking worse At the end of this year, first half of next year. Well, certainly first quarter next year probably looking a bit weaker. Maybe we get a stronger, stronger second half of the year on the, on the on the COVID side. But but property is also absolutely crucial to the economy. We've had a number of easing measures, but I see those as primarily defensive. The government taking measures to avoid the situation getting worse. And net net, it looks less likely to us now that we're going to be seeing even even a modest recovery in housing activity, sales and starts uh, in twenty twenty three, which was our View back in back in the autumn doesn't look like that's got that's going to happen now so these, these policy easing measures we've seen they, they don't look to me like this is the government now announcing that it wants this sector to recover and drive growth. Uh, I'm not seeing it I'm not seeing the sort of policy easing measures that will be consistent with that view. I think I think as I say it's a kind of defensive approach.
0: What's your latest assessment for the outlook for and battle over inflation? It seems there's some signs of easing of energy and goods prices, at least in the US, but services prices and and wage inflation are going up rather than down. Is it fair to say that many developed markets are now in a wage price spiral? And what does this inflation outlook mean for central bank policy? Where and when do you see the Fed and ECB are taking rates to a peak?
1: I think the, we're maybe only halfway through the inflation battle. I, th- I think there's a long way to go before uh, central banks will feel comfortable declaring that, they, that they've got on top of this situation. Remember, in the last two or three months, inflation has been higher than we expected, and that's mainly been driven by core, core inflation. Now, it's true when we look at the outlook for energy inflation, already that's easing in the US. It's getting worse uh, in in Europe, but on our on our assumptions about gas prices and oil prices, we should see energy inflation falling quite significantly next year. It looks like food price inflation will also fall next year. And and as you mentioned, and, and as we discussed earlier, there are these uh, improvements on the manufacturing supply chain side, which which are, which are all going in the right direction. The problem is uh, is that there's clearer and clearer evidence with each print that that the inflation is kind of broadening to the rest of the economy and to the service sector, which is the biggest sector of the economy in the US. Um, and, you know, and it's been rising kind of month after month. The annual inflation rate's been going up. It's still running at a very high month-on-month rate. If you, if you annualise those rates, there's further increases to come, we think, in, in the US on the services inflation side. Services inflation is now higher than goods inflation in the US. And I think one of the aspects related to that, which we talked about before, but doesn't seem to be getting any better at the margin, is the imbalance in the labour market. And we think the easiest way to look at that is the ratio of job vacancies to unemployment, which uh, remains at record high levels in the US, in the UK, and also in the Eurozone. And so we're seeing normal wage growth uh, 6-7% in the US, 6% in the UK, on the sort of official measure, it's are only around three in the Eurozone, but we've had some recent research published by Central Bank of Ireland looking at wage settlements data suggesting maybe more more like 5%. And that number in that profile that we're on on those Central Bank of Ireland numbers is actually quite consistent with what we're seeing in terms of the unemployment vacancy relationship in uh, in the Eurozone and, and what happened in the US and, and the UK. So wage price spiral, it sounds like a very dramatic thing, but... Uh, and central banks are still sort of talking about this as a risk, but to me, it sort of looks like we're kind of already there in many ways. We've got very high headline inflation. We've got inflation expectations rising, at least on, our, on sort of more short term measures, are still very elevated. Food prices, fuel prices are highly visible aspects of the CPI basket. They affect people's behavior um, and you've got very tight labour markets. I mean, it's it's sort of what else do you need to, to tell you you've got a wage price bar? It's all the, all the ingredients uh, are kind of already there in the mix. And so I think what that means for monetary policy is central banks have clearly decided they need to get rates to a restrictive level quite soon. Uh, so we've got the Fed going to five, ECB going to three on the, on the MRO. We've got the Bank of England going to four and three quarters. All, all those numbers are are, are restrictive. Those numbers are not necessarily far away from the consensus or the market view. but I think maybe where we have a slightly different view here is that we don't think the central banks are gonna be comfortable enough sort of pivoting away from that sort of restrictive stance quite as quickly as maybe some of the market commentaries suggesting. So we, we, we think they're gonna keep rates at those levels. Once they get there, sort of end of the first quarter, they're gonna keep rates at those levels right through, right through next year don't see the pivot until 2024 when the labour markets will have weakened and some of those pressures on wage growth will have started to come off.
0: One of the risks that you've flagged is the tension between tighter monetary policy from central banks to suppress inflation and fiscal easing by governments to cushion the cost of living crisis. Moreover, quantitative tightening will add to the net supply of government bonds that the market will have to absorb, potentially adding to real bond yields. How difficult a path ahead do you see from the unwinding of uh, quantitative easing? And how serious a threat is there of wider financial market dysfunction, as we saw, for example, in the UK gilts market? And could this ultimately force central banks to back down in their fight against inflation? I think maybe
1: the way I tend to think about this is that we're in a... We're in a um a current economic situation, where from a both from a cyclical perspective, but also a more kind of medium term, almost sort of structural perspective, we're moving to a world of higher real interest rates. So, cyclically, central banks have to get on top of inflation. That's got to require policy rates pushing up real rates through that perspective. But governments are also borrowing a lot of money still, uh, and central banks are, are are pushing bonds back into the market through through QT as well. So, all of those things would tell you real interest rates uh, have to rise even if they you know there's some moderation uh, in 2024 in policy rates we're probably going to end up with a level of real interest rates that looks quite different to what we've seen since 2010 post global financial crisis we've had a situation of zero or negative real real uh, interest rates for um, uh, so, you yeah, so know US UK government bonds've uh, have all, have all been yielding negative in real terms. That is now starting to look like that was quite a kind of unusual situation in historical context. And it's much more likely, I think, that we go back to a world of higher real rates. Now, once we get there, that might be quite a healthy situation in a sense. It would be easier to, for investors to generate returns for savers. And that's been part of the problem. But the path from here to there, I think, is, is fraught, with, fraught with risks. Uh, and one is that, as, as you mentioned, governments try too hard to protect households and firms from these shocks. Um, on the energy side, but also as the the real economy deteriorates next year, unemployment goes up, there's going to be lots of political pressure for governments to do more. If they start borrowing more in this environment, uh, that could put a lot of upward pressure on real rates. Obviously, we saw that risk kind of play out in in the UK. So there's that fiscal monetary tension that could make the real interest rate adjustment more volatile, more aggressive, and therefore more negative for the economy. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the sort of known unknown now, which after the UK gilts crisis, it's been revealed that there was leverage in hidden leverage in parts of the non-bank financial sector that that massively amplified the real interest rate shock and, and required the the Bank of England to to step in. Um, you know, if you look at what the regulators have been saying after that event, they've sort of said, "Well, yeah, we know we, we, we we're pretty sure that there is more hidden leverage in the system, but we don't know where it is." So this makes me quite uncomfortable. So uh, you know, a, again, the risk there is that we don't get the sort of orderly, sort of textbook adjustment in real rates that, that all the economics would point to, we get something a lot more violent, that either leads to a bigger real rate shock and a deeper recession, or uh, as you've alluded to as well, central banks get knocked off course in terms of what they need to do for, for monetary policy. Neither of those are a good outcome. And the second outcome may be less dramatic in the near term, but it, you know, it could push us more towards a sort of medium term stagflation scenario where they don't don't do enough to get inflation down. Um, and sort of growth remains very weak. Unemployment ratchets up. Inflation
0: stays high. Uh, That's not our base case, but I think that is is also a risk. Thanks, Brian, for those great insights. And thank you, uh, everyone, for listening. For more on Fitch's economic projections, you can access the report we've been discussing titled Global Economic Outlook December 2022, along with other sovereign and economic research on Fitch's website, fitchratings.com. We hope you join us for the next edition of Fixed Interests.